Okay, so I've been doing the Lenten series um, on healing uh, up in the sanctuary the last seven weeks that began on Ash Wednesday, and then we finished up last Wednesday, and now we're coming back to this study uh, on Romans, and we've been looking at the reason for Romans, and we've been taking an unusual approach, so let me just kind of remind you a little bit of where we've come. We uh, were talking a little bit about how the book of Romans is a book that is written for a reason, and the reason primarily is to bring two types of people together, the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman house churches. Uh, Paul would like to see them unified, and he would eventually like to make it to Rome to visit them and to establish a home base so that he can go on in missionary endeavors to Spain. And that comes at the end of the book of Romans. And we said that maybe when we read the book of Romans, it's very easy to kind of get lost as to what the purpose of it is. There's a lot of theology. There is a lot of Old Testament citations. There is a lot of very meticulous and complex ideas in the book of Romans, but why is it all there? And I don't think that Paul was out to write a systematic theology. I think he was out to lay a groundwork uh, for these two groups of people to come together as the body of Christ. And so we said that maybe the best way to begin this journey through the book of Romans is not at the beginning, but to begin at the end in chapters 12 through 16, where we see a lot of the practicality that is laid out. And what we find is as Phoebe, this lady that is entrusted with delivering this letter uh, to the Roman house churches, she is filled with the opportunities to read this letter. And I'm sure she had to field a lot of questions. Some of the questions that she had to answer uh, are very densely written in this last section that we're going to look at in the book of Romans, which is chapters five through eight. So that's what we're going to study here in the next week uh, or two, and then we'll wind this down. So for many people, Romans five through eight is kind of the high point of the letter because it is filled with such wonderful promises as there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Um, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, there's all kinds of these promises that we find, but there's also difficulties in this section as well. And these difficulties, and we're going to run into one of them uh, in just a moment, is trying to understand how this helps solve the problem between these two groups of people that Paul calls the weak and the strong. And um, so it's interesting to me that in this section of Romans 5 through 8, there is not a lot of Old Testament citations as there is in chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 9 through 11. But there's more imagery and there is more analogy that is in this section. And I ask myself, does this give us a clue as to who he is really trying to reach in this section? In chapters one through four, even though he mentions 
the Gentiles, really the bulk of that is directed toward Jewish people who are a little bit uh, full of pride because they are part of the chosen people. And basically, Paul knocks him down and reminds everyone that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's in need of the work of Christ. But in this section, it could possibly be that he has the Gentiles in mind because he does not use as much Old Testament. But what he does do is redraw for us the storyline that begins with Adam and comes all the way through Christ. We'll see what I mean in just a moment. So here's how I would like to kind of summarize chapters five through eight. By way of reminder, the weak are Jewish believers who believe that they are part of God's elective purpose through the Old Testament. They are the favored ethnic group. Um, but as they see Gentiles horning in on their promises, uh, they would question the faithfulness of God to his covenant. And so Paul has to deal with that, especially in chapters 9 through 11. The other group, the strong, are predominantly Gentiles. They, too, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but uh, they do not observe any of the Torah as God's will for them. Rather, they develop kind of a condescending attitude toward these Christian Jews who have not moved on from a lot of the law that is found in the Torah. So this letter, trying to eliminate the tensions between these two groups, um, then is Paul's attempt to reach of them, each of them in their own way. And I think that's what we come to in chapters five through eight. So here, finally, since we come to the last section of Romans, you see a chart here that might suggest the logic of the book. Most of us find this a little bit difficult because the way we read, we read obviously from the beginning to the end, and the logic usually within writings is to build a case or to uh, project a thesis of some sort and then to defend that. Well, Romans isn't written that way. Rather, the way to, I think, look at the book is first to understand its context, this inability of the weak and the strong to get along, and the context is how is Paul going to unify them? In chapters 9 through 11, there's this narrative approach uh, that talks about primarily the nation of Israel using a lot of Old Testament, and chapters 1 through 4, he begins to put the weak Jewish Christians in their place by the Old Testament citations that he quotes. Now in chapters five through eight, Paul's going to map out a basis for this lived out purpose of unity between the two groups in chapters 12 to 16. And that is what he's going to do by sketching for us the storyline from Adam to the kingdom of Christ, from creation to the consummation of the present age, and from the present uh, problems that this church is facing to the ultimate transformation of uh, the people of God. So hopefully the, that chart helps you a little bit to follow the logic uh, of Romans. So let me stop there. Do you have comments? Do you have questions? Uh, anything I can clarify? 
anything that you'd like to ask? Okay, then here's how we're gonna approach chapters five through eight uh, over the next couple of weeks as we finish this study. While there is a lack of Old Testament quotations, there is an interesting dynamic in this section. It's full of personal pronouns. And what we find is they are clumped together in different parts of the, uh, this section. And there are some generic ones that includes everyone. Then he begins to use the pronoun you, he begins to use the pronoun we, and then he uses the pronoun I in that famous passage where it seems as though Paul himself is struggling um, with wanting to do what's right, but he doesn't do it. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing and, and, and that type of thing. So here's how we're going to approach this. So we're going to look right here tonight at the generic pronouns. So isn't it funny how pronouns have become a very important thing, especially in recent years? So a lot of times, uh, especially in the LGBTQ community, there are individuals within uh, the LGBTQ community that will use pronouns, especially individuals that might be non-binary, people who um, would uses plural pronouns uh, rather than singular pronouns. So it's interesting um, that this is something that we see going on around us and we might not understand it. I've always been known as he and him and his, right? Uh, that's just kind of the way I, I understand life. But there are other individuals that, um, you know, approach life differently and and, and see themselves differently. And so they use different pronouns. So pronouns, even though we take them for granted, um, seem to be very important figures of speech because it identify, it's an identifier of some sort. So if it is a mark of identification, then when we notice them in this section, the question you wanna ask in the back of your mind is, who does Paul have in mind? Now, tonight, the generic one is easy. He's including everybody in this one. But when you look at the pronouns you and we and I, you're going to find that um, he might be inclusive of both the Jews and Gentiles, or he might be singling out just Jews or just Gentiles. So if you're in Romans, I want you to come to chapter uh, 5, verse 12, and I just want you to notice it's not there in overabundance, but it's there. I want you to notice it. So I'm going to read this section in chapter 5, verse 12, down to the end of the chapter. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. There you see the word all. Because all sinned. There you see it again. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like uh, the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, there's all again, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. There's uh, there it's repeated. Well, I might say too that you could include uh, how many times he uses the word many in, in this paragraph to signal all as well. Um, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. And finally, we come to the last two verses. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see how dense that paragraph is? I wish Paul could cut us a break here. Um, it is a difficult passage of scripture to sort through. And I think one of the things that we have to understand is he's including this vision of all or many to give us a comprehensive cosmic vision of the storyline of human existence. And so he uses the individual Adam and Christ in parallel and talks about how the effect of the lineage of Adam has upon the human race and how the lineage of Christ and his work uh, affects the entire human race as well. So in this section, Paul is going to be talking about both the strong, the weak, the Jews and the Gentiles, you and me, and your mom, your dad, and your neighbors, and everyone else. It's, you know, all-encompassing. So um, that's the first thing to observe. Any thoughts, questions, or comments there? Okay, so we're talking about all. That's the easiest part of it. <laughs> okay, what's really being done in this section is kind of a philosophical approach, kind of laying out two ways, Adam's way and Christ's way. Adam's way kind of turns out to be a tragedy for the human race, where Christ's way turns out to be redemption from that tragedy and the consequences that follow it. So what we find is that 
possibly what Paul is doing in the back of his mind is he's trying to say those two ways are still in effect, and maybe they're in full effect within the Roman house churches. In other words, there are still some that are following the way of Adam, and there are still some that are following the way of Christ, and he's trying to push the entire group to the point where they will all follow the way of Christ. Now, that's harder, uh, that's harder to do than it is said, because people are people, and we all have our tendencies and idiosyncrasies, and um, this here is called sin, when we wander off the path God initially created for us, uh, when we miss the mark of what God intended for the human experience, um, and then he introduces this idea of the law as kind of a guidepost, a something that was intended to get the in the created order back on track um, with what God initially desired. So cosmic vision, keep that in mind, two ways, the way of Adam and the way of Christ. Now, here's where the complexity comes in. The way this reads has led many theologians to suggest that it's while we all are sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God, it doesn't matter whether you sinned or not, you are condemned and you are guilty in Adam. So this is called original sin, that it's the idea of um, the minute a baby is born, he's already a sinner, she's already a sinner. Uh, simply because they're part of the human race. So this begins to um, become a battlefield uh, among theologians uh, between original sin versus uh, sin that is done ultimately by each individual because we stray from the path that God had in mind. So you begin to delve deep when you begin to talk about some of these things like original sin. And um, what I think then becomes a part of the discussion is that because of original sin, uh, all of us are in need of that one act of Jesus to justify us and to forgive us. Now, that's a very Calvinistic approach uh, to this passage. I'm going to show you in a couple of moments that there's probably another way to look at this as well, but this might be the approach that you are most familiar with. You've been told all your life, even if you were three years old, that you're a sinner and you need Jesus to be your savior, and sometimes that is introduced in Christian homes at a very, very young age, far beyond the level of understanding that any child could, could take in. But this is a very Reformation, uh, Calvinistic approach to this passage of scripture. But when, when theologians, and in the case of John Calvin, a lawyer who delved into theology gets a hold of a passage like this, it's easy then to forget the context. It's easy to forget the purpose of the entire book. 
And as a result of that, it becomes kind of like a theological uh, topic in and of itself, rather than connecting it to the overall purpose of what Paul is trying to do in the book. Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts there? Okay, so here's, maybe this will help. It might confuse. If it does confuse you, that just ignore it. But if we can consider Adam is a figurehead and Christ is a figurehead, the way Paul kind of goes about this is the way of Adam is considered in his mind to be the body of sin, not just individually, but collectively. And then the way of Christ ultimately becomes the body of Christ, not just individually, but collectively as well. So how do these two things unfold? Well, we're first introduced by grace. Now, we'll not come to this tonight, but if you want back to the very first verse of chapter five, and I know this is driving you crazy that I'm jumping around a little bit, we'll come back to this next week because you'll see he's using a different pronoun here, okay? But what we'll find is verse one, it says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which, in which we now stand. So the chapter actually begins with grace. And then in this paragraph, there's a focus on a determinant, a determinative uh, action by two figureheads. Adam is sin. It could also be called trespass or disobedience. But Paul likes this term flesh, that it's the way of flesh. In contrast, the determinative act of Jesus is obedience to God, and we receive his work by grace. So the status changes. Under Adam, we're all sinners. In Christ, and I'll come to this, we're all righteous. We'll come back to that in a second. Then the means of knowing God's will in the Old Testament is Torah. But in the New Testament, in Christ, it's not the, it's not the um, doing away with Torah concept. It's the idea of him being the Torah a fulfiller. And in complete obedience to Torah law, he is then able to give the gift of righteousness to those of us who can't live that kind of life. Then you have a divine decision. In the Old Testament, there are a series of judgments that come upon Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three. Um, but in Christ, there's justification. That is, we are declared righteous. And the consequence is death, which is handed down from one, uh, one generation to the next, but in Christ, there's new life. So the parameters then of that divine decision is stated by terms of many and all in this section. So look to the right here, and you'll see the rhetorical impact of these lines is to force everyone in the Roman house church to examine themselves with this question. Am I in the way of Adam or am I in the way of Christ? Those who say Christ must then treat their other uh, Christians 
as siblings that make up the body of Christ. That becomes prominent in the last section of Romans that we already looked at in 12 through 16. So this is pretty dense, complex um, stuff that we're looking at here. Is there anything I can explain that might help clarify it for you? Sometimes it's even difficult to know how to formulate a question uh, because this is, this is one of those passages that is just so tightly wound. But now, if not, I'm going to move ahead. So here's how I would like to explain these two lines, the way of Adam and the way of Christ. So Paul is using Adam. Now, remember when we talked about Adam and Eve in our Genesis study? So you've got to hold this in the back of your mind too. Is Adam um, a, an actual person or is Adam a description of mankind? And remember in Genesis, we were also talking that in genetics it, uh, and science, it's highly unlikely that the entire human race came from two individuals. So is Adam then a figure as well as Eve of the human race that begins at a point in time and as it develops over the centuries then we are known as adam uh adam adama the ground one who comes from the ground um that and that's why when people pass away ministers often will say from dust you came and to dust you shall return um so this line that comes from Adam is this imperfect line of living where we live within our own framework of sin and selfishness and, and, and the consequence of judgment introduced in Genesis that we will all die. So um, that we live out this this uh, existence that we have, knowing that there's a termination to it. Remember that the warning that God gave in this Genesis narrative is that the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, in the, in the narrative in Genesis 1 through 3, there's no immediate death, but there is an, a lingering idea of death is on its way. And that's part of the judgment that is laid out by God for violating the divine calling uh, upon human beings. So what we find here uh, is in verses 16 through 18 of Romans, he talks about that judgment. The judgment followed one sin. So it's the idea of we can boil this down to where human beings went astray and those of us who have followed Adam keep going astray. And that's classified in verse 19 as the fact that we are disobedient, just like that one man, and consequently sinners. The counterpart to that is if Adam, as represented in Genesis, is the first Adam, many theologians call 
Jesus as recorded here in Romans, the second Adam. Now you'll notice that Paul never actually uses that term for Jesus, that he's the second Adam, but it's implied because of the comparison that is being made between Adam and Jesus. So the line of Christ then is to live out a different way of life than the one that has been handed down from generation to generation. Jesus takes the full weight of that calling to live out in perfect obedience to Torah law. And then what he does is um, lives it to the point where he dies on behalf of those who couldn't live out that. And in his obedience, as you can see here, he abolishes death through his resurrection, and then grace becomes an, a superabundance of compassion upon those that, as you saw in verse one that I just read, believe, the ones who trust it, the ones who have faith in it. So the two lines are being compared here, and what, what we can describe as human experience is we live out the line of Adam until we meet Jesus, who allows us to live a different kind of life, full of forgiveness and justification and grace. Have I made it helpful or have I confused you more? It's not an easy paragraph, not an easy paragraph because of some other questions that come up, okay? So here we go. Because he uses the idea of all, all men, the question does come up. Does this passage teach universalism? That is, that there is forgiveness for all mankind. And you'll find this down in verse 18. It says, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So <laughs> original sin is a part of this conversation, but also um, universalism is a part of this conversation. And a lot of times your own background might bring this topic up but I would venture to say the churches that most Western Protestants attend never bring this up. They just kind of skip over it, but it's there, okay? So if the parallel is true from one to the other, the statement is said here, well, all men are condemned, but all men are justified. The, the qualification that I would put down is the condition is faith. And that's why I read verse one of, of uh, chapter five, where he says here, we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. It's available for all men. Those who receive it do so by faith. Stop trusting in themselves and start trusting in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, that probably becomes the dominant message that you have heard many times over. 
But I do want to tell you that it's not as easy or as simple as that because of the way Paul structures this paragraph. So I'm going to make things a little bit more confusing for you by referring back to original sin. So the idea of universalism is only a small part of this. The idea of original sin becomes a more dominant topic because of the comparison that is made to Adam. So the question of original sin can be put like this. Original sin means human beings bear the guilt of what Adam did. Okay. So again, doesn't matter whether you lived out a perfect life or not. You are guilty because you're fully human. Okay. That's called original sin. Now there is a question of fairness in there. Uh, is that just? So I, I noticed that Pete ends in some of his blogs, ask this question, does the Bible actually teach original sin? So he makes five statements in one of his blogs online. You can find it if you just, you know, put the question into Google and say original sin, Pete ends, you'll, you'll come to his blog. But here's the five points that he makes. Number one, inherited sinfulness is not one of the curses in Genesis 3. There's all kinds of effects. Cursed is the ground. Uh, cursed uh, is the woman who has to uh, bear a child in pain. Um, but the idea of, okay, the curse is all of you are guilty simply because you are descendants of Adam. It's not in the text in Genesis 3. Number two, throughout the Old Testament, the whole purpose of the law was to get, at least through one nation, the ideal back on track. But what's interesting is when the Torah law is given, there's an expectation that these commands that God gave through Moses are actually doable, that you can actually obey them, even though most of the Old Testament gives an account that the nation of Israel didn't do it very well. But yet, it's not this idea of you are so utterly defiled that there's no possible way that you can keep these commandments. It's the expectation you can, and that's part of the covenant obligation that's put upon the nation of Israel. Number three, this is fascinating to me. Except for Romans chapter five here, where Paul is using some technique to draw a parallel with Jesus, there's no other mention of Adam aside from Genesis in the whole Bible. So if original sin is such a dominant theological uh, point, you would think Adam would come up through the whole Bible, okay? That it's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault. Um, but Adam disappears after Genesis chapter 5. He's nowhere to be found except in Romans 5. Larry? 
question. Yeah. He, he, is, in, he is mentioned in the genealogies, though. Yeah, but not his actions. Okay. Not his actions. Um, that is, the genealogies are for a purpose of drawing the lineage of Jesus back to David, back to Abraham, then ultimately to the human race. So you are right. You are right. His name is mentioned, but his actions are not. So I wasn't clear on that. But the actions of Adam are not found anywhere else in the Bible, which is okay. interesting. Okay. So then what happens right after Adam and Eve is the first murder where Cain kills Abel. There's no mention of Adam's blame. And that was his kid that did that committed the first murder. Then later when the flood comes about and God decides, hey, we're going to start over because of the violence of the human race, none of that is linked back to Adam as well. They're all seen as individual decisions that people are making and carrying out. Does that make sense? So these are just observations that Pete Enns makes. And... Um, he says this, even if Paul sees Adam as the cause of human misery and alienation from God, we still need to grapple with why the Old Testament doesn't see it that way. So just an observation that, yes, it makes things more complex, no doubt about it, because I think it's easy then to say it's all Adam's fault, and now Jesus rectifies that. But at the same time, keeping context in mind, what if it's the intent of Paul to lay out the way of Adam and the way of Christ as a way of shining the spotlight on all the problems that are in the Roman house churches? And if that's the case, implied here is that everyone needs to examine themselves within these house churches. Am I following the way of Adam or am I following the way of Jesus? Okay, I will not go to the wall on any of these things. It's too complex. To be dogmatic on these things is not to understand how complex this paragraph is. There's just no easy way to make all the pieces fit. Does that make sense? So what we do is we just keep in mind the context. I keep going back to that. Why is Paul using this paragraph in light of his purpose for the entire epistle of Romans? Okay. All right. Another, uh, another very heavy writer and um, theologian David Bentley Hart, um, he suggests, okay, if you ever pick up a book by David Bentley Hart, um, just know that you can only read a page at a time. That's how deep he is, okay? 
you have to chew on it. You got to read the paragraph again and again. Right, Esty? <laughs> we read a book not too long ago. But uh, now here's what he suggests. Okay. He thinks that St. Augustine of Hippo uh, made the idea of original sin popular, and he feels that it was misreading Romans chapter 5 that made this approach to Romans chapter 5 pop, uh, popular. So for uh, David Bentley Hart, the issue in Romans 5 is this, which is fascinating. He says that Romans chapter 5 is this agonizing mystery that the Messiah has come, and yet so few of the Jewish people have accepted Jesus as Messiah, while Gentiles already have. In other words, he is saying that the Jewish people still reject Jesus as Messiah and are hanging on to the law as a way of being justified in God's eyes. And so that's why so much of the theme of the law keeps popping up in this paragraph. So he keeps saying, hey, Christ is the end of the law so that all may attain to righteousness leaving no difference between the Jew and Gentile. In other words, both groups come to God the same way on the basis of faith. That makes sense? Faith in the Messiah and his work. So he says, reading Romans 5 through an Augustinian lens will obscure more than help this understanding of the paragraph. But I will say this, if you've been schooled in Reformed theology, that includes um, Presbyterianism, that includes Lutheranism. Um, if you've been schooled in that, it's basically Augustinian theology that you're, has, you have been on. And Augustine is what in, uh, influenced John Calvin so much. Okay. So on the other end of the spectrum, those individuals that have gone to Methodist churches have been influenced by the theology of John Wesley. So um, with that in mind, Wesleyanism would have a much different approach to this paragraph. And I didn't even put together anything on that because by far the, um, the dominant approach to this paragraph in Western Protestantism has been uh, the Calvinistic reform approach on it. But any questions on that? Thoughts on that? Okay, so what do we do with it? Well, if it's true that maybe what Paul is trying to get across here is what is it that really makes up the people of God? Or maybe we could ask it this way. Who constitutes the people of God? Then the answer in Romans, including this paragraph that we've looked at tonight, the answer in Romans sounds something like this. This is a summary. Jews and Gentiles together on equal footing, united in and marked off 
not by observing circumcision and dietary restrictions, but by their common faith that Jesus is God's final answer to how all the world will be reconciled. And that is why you have to get along and love each other. All of you, Jew and Gentile together, are the new people of God. I, th I think that paragraph probably helps the most in what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to get them to see that they are both equally important in God's program. So let me say this, and I'm not, I'm not putting evangelistic zeal down here. Don't take it that way. But if you don't see this as kind of the primary reason for Romans, the way you will read Romans is like a salvation trap. And that is, you need to know the four spiritual laws. You need to go down the Romans road. You need to say the printer, sinner's prayer. Um, and, and part of that is this whole original sin plays a central role where, um, you know, the way to get people to feel their guilt is, hey, there's nothing good about you. There's nothing good about you. You're a sinner in God's eyes. He hates you. Uh, we've all heard that type of preaching, right? Um, and the only way that God will really love you or like you is if you will bow your head and say this sinner's prayer. Let's face it, that's the way most crusades have been, uh, have been arranged. And that I, what I mean is, you know, Billy Graham made it very famous, but before him, there was Charles Finney, uh, there was, you know, the great revivalists uh, like uh, Whitfield, uh, Spurgeon, and those type of individuals, um, even Billy Sunday for that matter, their whole objection, uh, their whole uh, objective is to get people to feel such shame and blame that they'll walk an aisle, okay? The buses will wait for you. Come down now, That right? So that's really a little bit of, how do I want to put this? Not understanding the book of Romans real well. The book of Romans is much more complex than that. And I think maybe we fail to understand that when people desire to become a Christian, they need to do so by engaging their full being, not just making a snap decision under the influence of emotion. And that's why it can be a very dangerous thing when people are manipulated by music, lighting, different things like that, and it becomes a, a way of control in many respects, rather than a genuine commitment that a person is saying, yes, I've come to a point in my life where I see that Jesus is God's son, and I see that his teaching is absolutely the best way to live life, 
and I want to make a commitment to that. And I understand I carry a lot of baggage and I understand that God's going to need to be patient with me because I got to work a lot of that crap out or, you know, I like to call it the junk in the trunk um, that um, and and we're all in that journey together and we are all in process and we're all changing by the help of the Holy Spirit. But um, but anyways, I just wanted to give you that warning that this passage has a lot of potential to it to be used in a variety of ways. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So be be careful and understand that it is a very densely packed paragraph and um, it fits into the overall purpose of the book of Romans. That's my whole point tonight. And you have to keep that in mind as you read it. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions on that? Oh, I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, you know, like when it, in Galatians, he says there's neither Jew nor, um, I, don't, I don't think he says Gentile or Greek. Yeah, um, Jew, Jew or Greek, free, male or female. Male or female, saying that everyone... Um, Kind of the the same thing. It's reminding me of it. Um, that we're, we're all, all one equal. in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're all on equal footing here. There's mm -hmm. not just because you were Jewish or just because you're a man, it doesn't make any difference. That's not the you know yeah. everybody together has to come to that decision mm -hmm. and by faith, you know. So. But who is he talking to in Galatians? Do you know, like who? Well, you're going to find a lot of similar themes in Galatians as you find in Romans. And the reason being, uh, Galatian, uh, the Galatian churches are in a region called Galatia that Paul visited on his first missionary journey in the book of Acts. And... Um, that is one of his earliest writings, and there's a reason that he writes it, and that is because these Jewish uh, Christians that didn't want to let go of the Torah or the law were following behind Paul on his travels uh, by establishing churches and confusing people about the necessity to keep the law, that, you, yes, you need faith in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law, circumcision, dietary laws, and the Sabbath, that type of thing. So Paul writes Galatians to, um, to basically correct that thinking and to insist that the dominant thing that is needed by these Jews and Greeks, which is another way of saying Gentiles, um, they all need one thing. That's they need Jesus. They they. They don't need to keep the law. So um, Galatians is really kind of a punch in the nose of these uh, individuals that were known as Judaizers that were following Paul yeah. around and confusing some of the new converts that came to faith in his travels. Does that make sense, Kay? Yeah, yeah. It was just, I, I don't know why I thought Romans was kind of the same point, but when I'm reading this, it it is slightly different in that it's not talking about following the yeah, law. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll touch upon similar <laughs> themes 
in Galatians and Romans, but I think there's a little bit different purpose that he is uh, aiming at. Uh, in Galatians, he's really aiming at uh, condemning this, what he calls this false gospel that's been uh, given to people that um, have been subjected to the Judaizers and stuff like that. So he yeah. actually, he is, man, I mean, he comes out like he's a heavyweight fighter in the book of Galatians. He really <laughs> does. It's pretty intense. Other thoughts? Larry? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 kind of just prove this passage in Romans? Doesn't it give him extra meat there? Yeah, I think so. And I, that's why I come back to faith being that that yeah. condition, you know, for you have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Um, yeah, that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And yeah, you know, I that's you're exactly right. I mean, you find that you can argue about this paragraph, but then there's other writings of Paul that probably give us a little bit further insight into a paragraph that he could have been clearer on um you know it his his objective here is to draw a parallel between adam and christ and um you know in ephesians he doesn't draw that comparison you know because he didn't need to uh he has a different purpose um in you know in ephesus He's battling the great influence of the temple of Artemis and, and uh, that type of thing that's going on in Ephesus. So got to always kind of keep in mind the, the backstory to the city that he's writing to. But mm -hmm. if you remember this from our initial study in Romans, he's never been to Rome. So right. as he writes this, he has another objective in mind. And that is, he'd like to get to Rome, but he wants it to be a pit stop on his way to Spain. So, you know, but he traveled through Ephesus several times over in his missionary journeys. And actually, uh, he spent a good amount of time in the city of Ephesus. So when you read Ephesians, you got to keep that in mind, that it's really up close observations that Paul is making. He's making distant observations here in Romans. So. Other questions? Just coming back to your, your, your uh, comparison of, I presume Wesleyism versus Calvinism. Give us a one minute explanation of that. Hmm. Well, Wesleyanism sees um, is much more dialed into sanctification. So, if I if I had to boil it down, Calvinism is mostly about justification. How do you get right with God? Wesleyanism is more about sanctification, and it's about how does a person become holy. So, there's a lot more concentration upon um, doing what is right to become more like Christ. Now, in Wesleyanism, 
you don't have the eternal security that you find in Calvinism. You have, um, you have the belief that you can lose your salvation and things like that if you do not follow the sanctification process. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I was raised a Methodist. I don't remember that piece of it, <laughs> at least that being... Well, you, you have a lot of similar themes, but when you get, when you dig down below um, and you see kind of the groundwork of a lot of the uh, doctrinal statements that are put out by either uh, Calvinistic or Wesleyan theologians, you'll find it's a different emphasis. Mm -hmm. It definitely wasn't the same emphasis as, say, the Baptists, you know, Southern, Southern Baptists or the yeah, which was much more Calvinistic. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're going to close it up at this point. It's eight o'clock. So um, we'll pick back up next week and we'll still be in Romans five through eight. Yeah, so if you have a chance to just peruse it a little bit, uh, we'll change the pronouns from uh, all uh, to you <laughs> next week because that's the next pronoun that uh, Paul's going to use in this section. So, all right. Thanks. Thanks Sandra, okay. Yeah. All right. You're Bye. welcome. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye. Good night. Good night. Good night.